We have children in America, all over America, who supposedly have been labeled with ADD or ADHD, some kind of attention deficit disorder. I believe in most cases they probably do have an attention deficit disorder. And the deficit stems from the parents who are not giving them enough attention. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study of the book of 1 Timothy, one of the three Pauline epistles or letters written by the Apostle Paul to pastors Timothy and Titus. Yesterday, we moved into chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, a section of scripture that deals with the church's treatment of widows. When we left off, Pastor Brogy was addressing the issue of honoring one's parents, in the case of this passage, one's mother who has been widowed. We're familiar with God's commandment to honor our mother and father, and as we rejoin Dr. Brogy today, we find out why obeying this commandment not only honors our parents, but God as well. Now, it's not by accident that the fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. That belonged to the first table of the law because like the preceding four, they primarily deal with our relationship to God. Now, in some explanations of the Ten Commandments, you say, some will say, well, you know, the first four deal with God, our relationship to Him, namely honoring Him, honoring His name, keeping His day, so forth that the last six deal with our relationship to man. And so they basically break the tablets apart into four and six, but that's not how God gave them. He gave them five and five. They're fundamentally mistaken because the fifth commandment does not simply deal with your relationship to man. It deals primarily with your relationship to God. Honoring your parents is part of our duty. It's part of your duty because our parents in the developmental ages are, as the reformers used to say, in loco dei, that is, in the place of God. And so our duty to God as children is seen in the fact that we obey our parents because children, when we obey our parents, we are obeying God. That's the same idea for here. Caring for your parents is a religious duty. It's part of practicing piety. It's part of your godliness. It's part of your duty to God. And so Paul will go on in verse 4 and say that caring for your parents is acceptable in the sight of God. That's the positive teaching of verse 4. To support our parents and our grandparents is not only part of our duty to them, it is part of our duty to God. But when he comes to verse 8, he puts the negative spin on it. Not to do this is a very negative offense. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, very often we take this verse of Scripture and we put it on parents and they would say, someone like myself, if I don't take care of my wife and my children, I am worse than an unbeliever. And that is certainly a legitimate application. But understand it in its original context. If anyone does not provide for his own, i.e., your parents or your grandparents, those of your household, you've denied the faith, you are worse than an unbeliever. 
Not only is it to neglect our duty to them and to God, but it's to sink below the level of a pagan. Not to provide for your parents or your grandparents. It's to disown the faith. It's to be worse than an unbeliever. It's to shirk your God-given responsibility. It's to deny one of the articles of the faith, the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. And when someone does this, he says they're worse than an unbeliever. And I think for at least two reasons. First, if we claim to possess truth, if we know the commandments of God and we flagrantly deny them in our behavior, then it's hypocrisy. Second, Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that even unbelievers feel a family devotion and responsibility to their own. Why? Because God wrote the law not simply on stone tablets. He also wrote it into their hearts. And because he wrote it in their hearts, pagans even carry this out. But for those of us who have not just the law written in our heart, but we have the special revelation of God through Christ and Scripture, when we neglect this, we are worse than a pagan. Paul says to neglect this responsibility is tantamount to denying the faith. Because true faith shows itself in love, and where there is love, there is no true faith. Now, these have, I think, tremendous implications today for you and I. Let me suggest a few. Now, we all know that as medical care and therapy advances, that the average age of the community increases. In fact, the birth rate in America is declining. We're at zero population growth, they say. But the reason we've increased as a nation, laying aside the 40 million babies that are missing because of Roe v. Wade, lay aside the fact that parents, even Christians, are not having children as they ought. The only reason we're growing is because we're letting so many immigrants in. Thank God for that because we'd be in real trouble as a nation. But add to that the fact that medical technology has increased so much with very few children being born, so many missing, and with medical technology increasing for the first time in our nation's history, it's predicted by 2010, some put it as early as 2007, for the first time, a majority of Americans will be over the age of 60. Even today, there's not enough room for those in good nursing homes or geriatric wards or aging people who can get the kind of care that they need. And the sad fact is, is that many of these older people have been abandoned by their families. They've just been dumped in a nursing home somewhere and forgotten. On the ground of God's natural law alone, let aside the written word of God in your relationship with Christ. On the ground of his natural law alone, that's indefensible. It's our duty to provide for our parents, not just financially, but also with our love. And I think one could gather that from verse 8, because there's plain biblical warrant for not just caring for our parents financially, but for caring for their other needs, to be involved. Now, I'm not against nursing homes, please understand. But I believe that more often than not, they are unnecessary. Many times, when we could take care of our family... Because we have the money or because the government will pay for them, we'll put them in some kind of a facility. Now, I understand that there are times when you cannot offer the medical technology that is necessary to keep your parents safe. But that's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm talking about institutionalizing your parents, leaving them unnecessarily in a nursing home, in some cases abandoning them. Hey, look, if you don't believe me, ask Gail Burrs, who has a ministry every week in the local nursing homes. There are scores of people there that no one ever visits. Oh, they get the card from their kids on their birthday and Christmas. But so many have just been dumped in there. You know, this is one of the signs of the last days. God will write to, through Paul to Timothy in his second letter, and he'll tell us one of the marks of the last days is that people will be without natural affection. And I happen, and look, at, think about it for just a moment. Whoever would have thought even 10 years ago that we'd have all these mothers killing their own kids and kids murdering their parents and the kind of insolence and disobedience and hate that parents have and there's no glue in the family anymore and kids are on their own and they're without natural affection. Of course, among other things, I believe one of the things that is driving this is that in an earlier and earlier age, we're institutionalizing our children in daycare. And I happen to believe that the earlier you will institutionalize your children, the earlier they will institutionalize you. And I think that is what is happening in our day. Now, look at You ought to care for your parents. My parents know they are welcomed in my home. And if need be, they know in a heartbeat, I will leave this church and I will go and care for them. And Audrey's parents have the same kind of commitment as well. Look, it's part of our duty as Christians. It's part of our piety. It's part of our godliness. It's part of our responsibility as children and grandchildren and honoring our parents and grandparents. So the church is not to care for just any widow. They're not just to honor anyone, but those who are widows indeed. And a real widow, a widow indeed, is one who is physically alone. There's no one in this world to care for her. But not only is she physically alone, she's spiritually alive. And as for the rest, in God's economy, the first responsibility for caring for the needy falls on the family. Not the church, not even the state but the family. Family members are first to learn to practice piety and caring for their own. And in so doing, he said that these family members, quote, will make some return to their parents. It's the right thing to do. And God says, this is pleasing. This is acceptable to me. It's welfare as God intended it. And Timothy, don't be shy in teaching this. Command it. Why? Because the testimony of the church is at stake. Verse 7. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. Please understand the church's compassion is not limitless because clearly there are those widows who can be cared for by their family. But now Paul goes on to explain more precisely about those widows who are to be cared for by the church. Who are these widows indeed who are physically alone and spiritually alive? Do we identify their spirituality simply by their prayer life or are there some other clues? Well, he gets very, very specific. He speaks here of these who are widows indeed, those who will be put on the list. You see that in verse 9? Underline that phrase, be put on the list. It translates a single Greek word that literally means to write down or to enroll in a book. The King James puts it, let not a widow be taken into the number. The ESV translates this verb, let a widow be enrolled. 
In like fashion, the NIV puts it, no widow may be put on the list of widows unless. The word literally means to write down and to take note of. The verb was originally used in the sense to pick out so as to receive a soldier in the army, to enroll him. And God says that there are certain widows who are to be enrolled for the purpose of receiving the ongoing support of the church. Now, it appears early in the history of the church that they were practicing this. But as the problem expanded, Paul saw the need to regulate very carefully those who would be cared for. But we saw, for instance, in Acts 6, those women who were widows who were being fed daily by the church. In addition, when you come to Acts 9, some years down the road in verses 39 and 41, Peter goes to that city of Joppa, and there he finds a recognizable group of widows who appear to have been separated out. They are these that Paul would say are on the list. And Dorcas is one of them, who's described as abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. So Paul makes it very clear that these widows who are to be put on the list to be considered for the church help have three primary characteristics that are true of them. Three qualifications. First, let a widow be put on the list if she is not less than 60 years old. That's the first qualification. She's not less than 60 years old. Now, why 60 years old? Well, for a couple of reasons. First, I think it's in light of the counsel that he's going to be give beginning in verse 11 concerning younger widows. And there he will encourage the younger widows to remarry and to bear children in order to control their sensual desires and to carry out their God-given responsibilities of having children. And certainly, a woman by the age of 60 is beyond the childbearing age, and her sensual desires are not the same issue that it would be with a younger woman. He gives a second qualification here in this verse. Having been the wife of one man. Literally, the Greek text reads, a one-man woman. And the same instruction, if you remember, and the same construction was given in reference to elders and deacons. If you remember in chapter 3, Paul said that elders and deacons must be the husband of one wife, or literally a one-woman man. Well, likewise, this lady is described as a one-man woman. And so what it means for the elder and the deacon, it means here for the widow. He's describing a widow who had a blameless married life. She was faithful to her one husband. No divorce, certainly no polyandry, and no marital adulteration in her relationship, having been the husband of one wife. Then he gives a third qualification, having a reputation for good works. And then Paul enumerates on that with five specific examples that follow, each of them introduced by the word if. The word and there is italicized. It's not in the original. But circle those five ifs, would you? He describes a woman who has a reputation for good works if she has brought up children. Now, it is often true that a woman having raised children in that day was still alone. You say, well, how could that be? She brought up children. I would think her children would take care of her. How is it that she is physically alone? Well, number one, sometimes a woman will outlive her children. Number two, and it was especially true in the first century, sometimes entire families were wiped out by persecution. They experienced a level of persecution that the church has never known since. 
So it says she must be one who brought up children. Now, I don't think he is saying that she had to have had children because I don't think that Paul would exclude those who are unable to bear children, barren women. And I believe that because he doesn't simply say those who had children, but those who brought up children. And there is a huge difference in the New Testament. He uses a very technical term that is also used in Ephesians 6 of someone who brings up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And unfortunately, in our day, there are many women who are having children, but they are not raising children. Very often today in the American family, over half of the children in America are being raised in daycares. And when Paul comes to his letter to Titus, he is going to give in, more pointed, in a more pointed way some very specific commands as to who ought to be raising the kids. And ladies, I want to tell you, everything in our culture will discount what you do with those children as important. But you need to get your cues not from the culture, but from the word of God. And God's word teaches that you are to be the one to be there with those children, to bring them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. And we as dads need to do everything in our power to make that possible. Now, there's a lot of pastors who are rationalizing this truth, ladies, because they want your tithe. I don't want your tithe. I want you to do what God wants you to do, and that's to raise those children, because no one can do it better than you can do it. Now, I was thinking this week of one of our former widows who's now home with the Lord. As I thought about her, as the Lord brought her to mind, I thought, you know, that would have been a lady who would have been qualified to have been put on the list with the one exception that she did have children who cared for, them, for her. Mary Covert, married to her husband for 50-some years, widowed in her 70s. Now, Mary, when they got married, was trained, and she had a very successful practice as a doctor of optometry. But after she married Hal and God opened her womb, she quit that job to stay home and to raise her children. And I want to tell you, because she did, those children were there for her when she needed them. Listen, that's what God intends, despite all of the messages our culture is sending us. We have children in America, all over America, who supposedly have been labeled with ADD or ADHD, some kind of attention deficit disorder. I believe in most cases they probably do have an attention deficit disorder. The deficit stems from the parents who are not giving them enough attention because no one is home raising them. And so we have all these hyperactive children whom we need to drug up to calm down because I want to tell you, a daycare cannot raise them like you can. They cannot raise them in a herd like you can. And so they come of school age. These kids are so wound up. They haven't had the attention, discipline, warm, consistent, unbroken love that their mothers should be giving them. And so we get them to school and we have to drug them up. Look, when I went to grammar school, we didn't ring a bell every day as we do all across America to go and dispense the Ritalin, where we have to cloud up their brains and slow down their bodily functions in order to keep them under control. We had 40 kids in a classroom. They weren't running wild. Nobody was accused of murder and rape and sexual immorality and violence and knives and guns. We didn't have those kind of problems. And it's not because children were different in the 60s. 
but the way we are raising them is different. And so what we are doing today is we are just treating symptoms instead of dealing with the root problem. Now, maybe, maybe your child's an exception. Maybe they really do have ADD. Let me cover myself there, okay? But I doubt it. So many of these kids, no one's raising them. And the church is sending the same message. We got pastors' wives who are out working. They're setting a model for the rest of the congregation. When they have young children, they should be home. Look, it's a high and holy calling to bring them up. Not just to have them, but to bring them up. To raise them in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. It involves two more than just being home. Some women are home, but they're not raising them. Their, their mind is out at the mall. It's not with those children. You say, well, I'm doing everything I can. I'm raising them, trying to love them, teach them the word of God. They're still wound up. I understand that. When my kids that get that way, I say, run around the yard 20 times and then come back. And if they're still wound up, go for another 20. It has a tremendous calming effect. Turn off that TV, unplug some of those silly video games, give them some exercise, and they'll be cured of ADD, okay? It's free. Now, another elucidation. Another elucidation of good works comes in the second phrase that follows. If she has shown hospitality to strangers... Now, hospitality is a theme that runs all the way through the New Testament, and it was critical to the health of the early church. Many believers were cut off from their families for having received Jesus as Lord, and they would need hospitality until they could get on their feet. In addition, there were many evangelists, missionaries, traveling pastors and teachers who would need a place to stay when they came to your town. Inns were few and costly and notoriously immoral. And so it was critical that God's servants show hospitality as we do need today. And many of God's unknown saints, people who you've never heard of, have done a tremendous service to the kingdom of God by opening their homes. And to this day, the lodging of guests Largely falls on the lady. She's the one who has to make sure typically the house is clean, the bathroom is straight, the meals are well prepared. Though it's not alone her responsibility, for God spells out as a qualification of an elder that he too is to be hospitable. And when God speaks of a woman here who's hospitable, he says hospitable to strangers. He's not talking about you just showing care and love for those people you know in the church. But for those who you don't know, remember what our Lord said in Luke 12? And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and repayment come to you. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. He's talking about people who cannot pay you back because they don't have the means to do it. Look, if you're opening your home just to get an invitation back, it's all for the wrong reason. But he said, if you will do it his way, you will be blessed. Since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. 
Look, there may not be much payoff in this life other than scuffed walls, scratched floors, and sometimes ungrateful saints. But when you get to heaven, God will reward you. Now, another description of these good works that he describes this widow with is that she is one who has washed the saints' feet. Now, the phrase, washing the saints' feet, had its origins, as you know, from John chapter 13, when our Lord um, was in that situation, and he washed the feet of his disciples. If you remember there in the upper room at the Last Supper, those guys, Luke tells us, was having, were having a discussion on who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And right in the middle of their discussion, we learn that Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself about. And I'm sure as he began to remove the sand and the soil from their feet, that place must have been dead silent. The silence of embarrassment and shame. But our Lord teaches, he, takes the, he seizes the opportunity to teach them something about servanthood, a lesson that they will never, ever, ever forget. Now, most of you know that in ancient Palestine, when you came to a friend's house, you bathed first, and on the way, if the streets were dry, your feet would be covered in dust. If the streets were wet, they would be covered in liquid mud. And when you got to that home, typically, the host or sometimes a servant would get down and they would wash your feet. And so Jesus does what they should have done. And he says to them in verse 12 of John 13, And when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. Those are terms you used to describe me. For he was the teacher of teachers. And he was the Lord of lords and king of kings. He's the one who made them, who created them. You call me teacher and Lord. You're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash my feet. Now that is what you might expect him to say, but that's not what he says. If I, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet... You ought to wash one another's feet. Look, if the Lord Jesus were physically present here today, he needed his feet washed. He needed some act of service by his people. We'd line all the way up to Walmart to do it. That's easy. Who doesn't want to wash the feet of someone who's like our Lord? But you see, the real mark of your spirituality is to wash the feet of those who are unlike our Lord. And it's one of the tests that Paul requires of widows. If she is to be considered for the church's help, she is to be a servant. She is to wash the feet of the saints. She has a servant's heart. And because she cared for the members of the church, the church is to care for her. God has a perfect order and plan for his people who are following his will. God reminded the church at Philippi that they had met Paul's needs and that in turn God would meet all their needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. The same concept applies to the qualifying widows in the church. If they've been faithful to the church, the church should be faithful to them. And tomorrow we'll take a closer look at the qualifications of a widow who should receive help from the church. We hope this program is a help to you and your growth in God's word. If so, won't you drop us a note and let us know? Your letters and prayers are always an encouragement to us. You can reach us at Search the Scriptures, P.O. Box 600, Seabrook, South Carolina, 29940. 
And don't forget you can get a copy of this or any of the messages we air by calling us at 877-787-7478. Today's message is part one of Caring for Members in God's Church and is available on CD or DVD. You can also listen to it online at our website, searchthescriptures.org, or using the Search the Scriptures app. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our study in 1 Timothy and Search the Scriptures.